This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Thank you, guys. Open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, if you were new at First Baptist today, a couple of weeks ago, we began a new series that is going to take us through Easter. And what we're doing is we're, we're doing a study of the Gospels. And we're looking at the ministry of Jesus through the background of passages that in some way involve food and drink. So the title of this series is Taste and See. It comes from Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We, we want to see and savor Jesus in this series. We want to hunger and thirst for him more and see that Jesus alone can satisfy our deepest longings, our deepest hunger, our deepest thirst. So today we're going to look um, at Matthew 12 and the first 14 verses of Matthew 12 and really it's about the law of love. The law of love. Matthew 12 and verses 1 through 14. If you would turn to that in your copy of God's Word, and let's look at it together. The Bible says at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy, like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law, which is really all about loving you and loving others. We pray that you would forgive us for the times when we have attached things to your law that are really of our own making. We pray that you would forgive us for the times when we have ignored what your word is all about and really the times when we have, have, have ignored mercy and love, which is right at the heart of 
all that you tell us to, 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 to do and to be. We pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit right now, help us to understand this text. Give us the grace to hear from your Spirit. Would you encounter us? Would you speak to us now? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to avoid being sued, many companies today are attaching labels to their products that warn of things that, well, to anybody with common sense, would seem to be fairly obvious. In fact, there's even sort of an award contest, an annual award contest now, for wacky warning labels. And these are a few of the recent winners. A seven-inch decorative globe, little tiny globe you would, you know, set up somewhere. Seven-inch decorative globe with the warning label, these globes are not to be used for navigation. An electric razor, a shaving razor, with the warning label, never use while sleeping. A baby stroller with the warning, remove child before folding. Take the kid out first before you fold it up. Um, you outdoorsmen will love this. A fishing lure with a three-pronged hook that warned harmful if swallowed. A rotary tool that warned this product is not intended for use as a dental drill. A scooter, a child's scooter that warned this product moves when used. This is my favorite. A tractor with the warning, avoid death. <laughs> you know, we, we laugh, I mean, but sometimes religious people attach rules and regulations to God's word that are just about as silly as those. And, and really, legalism is no laughing matter because it, it gets in the way of God's real law, which is all about love. Now we see an example of that in our text today. Uh, last time, uh, we were looking at the fact that Jesus already, at this point in his ministry, is being heavily criticized by the religious leaders because he's reaching out in love to people that were considered sort of less than in that culture. And he's reaching out to people with sinful pasts and people like tax collectors and uh, women and uh, Gentiles. Um, and he was, he was breaking rules, and he, he, but he was breaking their rules. He was breaking the rules of the religious leaders, not God's rule, not God's law, because God's law is all about love. In fact, one day someone approached Jesus and they said, what's the greatest law in your word, the greatest commandment? Of course, they were talking about the Old Testament. And Jesus said the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said all of the law and the prophets. In other words, the entire Old Testament hangs on these two commandments. The Old Testament, in a nutshell, is love God, love people. Um, now, as teachers, 
and custodians of God's law, the, the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, should have known this. But what had happened is that over time, they had attached hundreds of rules and regulations of their own making to God's law. They, they had attached sort of their own oral law and tradition to God's written law, to the Old Testament. Now, why are people so attracted to legalism? Because this is just not a problem in biblical times. This is a problem today. I mean, there's a tendency to want to, to attach things to Scripture, to want to attach sort of our own uh, list of rules to what the Bible actually says. You know, I believe it all comes down to an issue of control. In our sinful, fallen nature, sometimes we, we want to control people, and we think we can keep them more under control. The more rules, the more we can keep them under control. And the other thing is even more sinister, we want a God we can control. We want a God who is sort of manageable. And, and see, if we could just reduce God to a list of rules and regulations, well, you know, there's a God we can handle. We can manage that kind of a God. He's more of a tame God. In 2013, a zoo in China started to receive complaints because as people approached the enclosure that was labeled African lions, they started hearing barking coming from inside. Well, it turns out what had happened was that some unscrupulous zoo officials, because they didn't have a lion available, had substituted a Tibetan mastiff which is a large dog with a ring of fur around its neck. We, we don't go to zoos to see dogs, right? You go to zoos to see the dangerous stuff, right? Lions, tigers, bears, snakes, stuff that's dangerous on the outside, in the wild. But in a zoo, you know, they're contained. Part of our fallen sinful nature is that we, 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 we would like a God that we could contain. A God that's kind of more manageable. If we just reduce God to our own list of rules, you know, that's, that's a God who's contained. In C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a conversation uh, in which the, the children in the story are talking to a character, Mr. Beaver, and they're talking about Aslan. Aslan is the lion who represents Jesus. And they're talking about Aslan, and one of the children, Susan, she says to Mr. Beaver, is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. Now see, what legalism does is it allows us to play king. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And then the real king shows up. And there was bound to be conflict. So let's look at what happens here um, in, this, in this text. The first thing that we see is the, the, the criticism. The criticism that Jesus is getting from these religious leaders. So look at verses 1 and 2. It says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on 
the Sabbath. Now, what's happening here is that in Deuteronomy, God told farmers to reserve the edge of their field for poor people. That was just part of Old Testament law. And so Jesus and his disciples probably going through along the edge of a grain field on the Sabbath. They were eating these, these heads of grain. They were hungry. Remember, they, were, they had left normal jobs. They were in this itinerant ministry and traveling around. And so uh, they, were, they, were, they needed to eat on the Sabbath, and so they were eating this grain. The fourth commandment, the fourth of the Ten Commandments says... Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. doesn't say anything about eating grain. But the Pharisees had attached 39 of their own rules and regulations to the fourth commandment. Um, one of which was that uh, they were forbidden to do something like this. It wasn't God's law. It was, it was the, it was, it, these were man-made rules. Um, and so... That's what's happening here. Now, we have to constantly be aware of this. Um, Wednesday, when we start our Deeper Life courses, one of the courses is going to be how to read the Bible for all it's worth. One of the things we're going to talk about in that course is, you know, how to distinguish between what's truly biblical, what the Bible actually teaches, and the stuff that's kind of grown up around the Bible. Jesus isn't breaking God's word here. He was breaking the, uh, the, uh, the oral tradition that has sort of grown up around it. We need to constantly make that distinction. What's biblical and what's traditional? You know, what's just cultural? What's truly in the Bible and what's the stuff that's kind of grown up around the Bible, maybe that we've attached to the Bible and that often gets in the way of actually what Scripture teaches? That's what's happening here. So we see this, this criticism, and then we see Jesus respond to this criticism. Now, Jesus is going to respond in two ways. He's going to respond with words, and he's going to respond with action. First of all, he responds with words. So, verses 3 through 5, he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So Jesus begins here with two examples from the Old Testament. The first comes from 1 Samuel 21. The situation is that David and his companions are on the run from Saul. Saul is hunting them, trying to kill them. They're hungry, and the priests allow them to eat the sacred showbread, uh, which typically would, would not be done. The second example um, is from Numbers 28, and it's, it's, it's an exemption within the law that allowed the, uh, the priests to work on the Sabbath because that was part of their priestly duties to do that. Now, Jesus' choice of these two examples is fascinating. Because think about David's situation. Okay? What's, what's happening in, in 1 Samuel 21? David, is, he's already been anointed as king. He's the rightful king. But he's, having, he's on the run from Saul, who is trying to destroy him. What's happening in this text? You've got the true king 
Jesus, who is, has already been anointed as king, but then you have these wannabe kings that are seeking to destroy him, the descendant of David. And then the second example about the, the priest uh, working in the temple on the Sabbath, think about who the priests were. They were the guardians of the temple. But now we see that something greater than the temple has arrived on the scene. And that's where Jesus is moving next. He says in verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now, think about how this sounded to first century Jews. Shocking! Because the temple was identified in their minds with the very presence of God. When Jesus says something greater than the temple is here, how could anything be greater than the temple except God Himself? And then Jesus says in verse 7, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now, once again, Jesus is quoting from Hosea 6.6. 6. We saw this last week. This is Jesus, one of his favorite passages. The context of Hosea 6.6 6 is that God is telling the people, Look, don't come to me with all of your religious ritual if you're not treating people with compassion and mercy. Don't come to me with all of your piety if you don't have pity for hurting people. Um, this is a situation where just you know, obvious mercy would have allowed them to eat this grain. Pharisees, ha, ah, don't care about mercy. Um, you know, it's one of our man-made rules that you're violating and that trumps mercy. God says, no. No. I desire mercy, not, um, not sacrifice. He wasn't against sacrifices. He was against them when they were not accompanied by mercy and compassion. And then, in verse 8, Jesus just takes things to another level entirely. He says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is saying here, the Sabbath is fulfilled in me. And I now determine how it's to be used. Now think about these claims that Jesus is making. He's claiming to be greater than the temple, which symbolizes the very presence of God. How could anybody make a claim like that but God? It's really a claim to be God. And then he's claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath. Now listen, claims like this leave us with three options when it comes to Jesus. Three and really only three. Either Jesus was a liar who was just trying to gain power and get people under his control through telling these outrageous lies, or Jesus was a lunatic, sort of just a self-deluded madman who had convinced himself these things were true. The third option is that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that Jesus was and is the Lord. And what is it that vindicates all of his claims? It's his resurrection. He rose from the dead. The resurrection 
validates and vindicates every claim that Jesus ever made about himself. It means that he is the king. And guess what? If Jesus is the king, and he is, you owe him your allegiance. I owe him my allegiance. He's the king. He's the Lord. Jesus responds with words, and then Jesus responds with action. Because what Jesus is now going to do, they've been talking about the Sabbath, they've been talking about mercy. Jesus is going to sort of do something that's going to just, it's going to act out everything that he's been talking about. And it's going to expose the hard-hearted horror that is at the center of legalism. What happens Next, verses 9 and 10. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Jesus, as a devout Jew, is doing what he would do on any Sabbath. He goes to the synagogue and his opponents are there, these religious leaders that have been criticizing him that are already plotting to kill him, they're there. And here's this man with this withered hand. It's probably a shriveled up hand, probably a defect that he had had from birth, probably been unable to work his entire life. He would have been looked down upon because people in that culture looked upon people with any sort of deformity like this. Um, they, they thought that either they had done something wrong or maybe their parents had done something wrong and so they, were, they had this deformity. Um, and so he's, 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 an, he's looked down upon. He's been looked down upon. The last thing that he wants is attention drawn to him. And these religious leaders single him out. Instead of seeing him as a person, who's hurting and in need, they see him as a pawn in their game of seeking to entrap Jesus. And so the religious leaders who who should have, above all people, had compassion for this man, they single him out. They point to this man with this, this withered hand and they say to Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Because they had rules against doing that too. And their whole purpose in asking him that is to entrap him. Now, Jesus, as he often did, responded to their question with a question of his own. Jesus responds in verse 11, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? He knew the answer. (laughs) They all did. They all would have lifted their sheep out of the pit. And now Jesus makes a how much more argument, an an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus says in verse 12 of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now the Gospel of Mark tells us that when Jesus said this, They just sat there in utter silence. I mean, what were they going to (laughs) say? You know, they just sat there in stony silence. 
But they weren't silent because they were seriously considering the obvious truth of what Jesus had just said. They were silent because their minds were already made up. They did not agree that this man should be healed on the Sabbath, and they all agreed that Jesus should die. There's just so much dark irony that's happening here. They want to deny Jesus the right to do something good on the Sabbath while they're sitting there plotting evil in their hearts on the Sabbath. They want to deny Jesus the right to do something that's life-giving on the Sabbath, and they're sitting there plotting at that very moment to destroy life. Mark, in his account of this, tells us that Jesus at this point just looked around at these silent religious leaders. He, he looked around at them, looked in their eyes. And Mark 3, 5 tells us about the emotion that Jesus felt at that moment. It says he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. These are strong verbs. And they really, they really tell us that, that Jesus... The emotions he was feeling at this point were really a mixture of anger and sadness. He's angry at these religious leaders, but he is at the same time sad for them, grieving for them, grieving because of their hardness of heart, grieving because of what they're missing. This is, Jesus is their Messiah. The way, the truth, and the life standing right in front of them. And they're missing it. See, this is the thing about sin. One of the worst things about sin in our lives is not just the, the pain that it brings into our lives, which it does. Um, one of the worst things about it is what, is what it causes us to miss. The good things that we miss because of sin. They're missing Jesus. Yeah, they're, they're missing their Messiah standing right in front of them. And Jesus just grieves. Just grieves for them because of this. And then in verse 13, he said to the man, stretch out your hands something he'd never been able to do. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. We've talked about before the fact that the healings of Jesus are more than just healings. They are signs. Signs of new creation. The old creation marred, broken by sin. But in the coming of Christ, God is beginning to, to bring new creation. He's beginning to restore His creation, which He created good, but which has become broken. In Jesus, God is, God is bringing about new creation. He's restoring His creation. And one day when Jesus comes again, it's going to be completely restored. Totally restored. Until then... He calls us to join with Christ as agents of restoration, bringing hope, bringing 
where, where there's hopelessness, bringing light where there is darkness. You know, because we're surrounded by hurting people, people in need, people, people who are in pits. And they can't get themselves out. Let's take a look for a couple of minutes at this video. A man fell in a hole. He fell in a hole and he couldn't get out. A traveler passed by. He told the man to meditate, to purify his mind. And when he reached Nirvana, all suffering would cease. The man did as he was told, but he remained in the hole. Another man appeared. He explained that the hole didn't exist, and neither, in fact, did the man. It was all an illusion. The man who did not exist was still stuck in the hole that was not there. Another visitor arrived. He instructed the man to perform good deeds to improve his karma, and though he would still die in the hole, he might be reincarnated as something magnificent. Another man looked down from above. He taught the man to pray five times a day facing east and to follow five important tenets. If he was faithful, one day, perhaps, the divine would set him free. The man prayed as best he could, but he was losing strength, and in the hole he remained. Another man appeared. There was something different about him. He called down to the man in the hole and asked him if he wanted to be free. This man lowered himself into the earth, into the pit. He took hold of the man. dragged him into the light. And the man in the hole, who could not get himself out, was saved. What I like most about that video is the fact that Jesus doesn't stay on top and just drop the rope. Jesus gets down into the pit with the man and takes him. This is what we just celebrated at Christmas. This is the incarnation. This is Philippians 2. That, that Jesus, instead of considering equality with God something to be grasped, he did what? He emptied himself. He humbled himself. And he came to us. He came to us. He came into this broken world. Came to us in our pit. 
to rescue us now. He calls you and me to be his agents with him in doing that. In going to the hurting. Not remaining at a safe distance from them, but going to them. We saw last week, Rosaria Butterfield says that, you know what, evangelism is about putting the hand of the hurting into the hand of the Savior. But we can't put the hand of the hurting into the hand of the Savior unless we're willing to get close enough to the hurting to be hurt ourselves. Are you willing? Are you willing? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us in the gospel. We thank you that you were willing to come to us in our need when we were utterly unable to save ourselves. As recipients of your amazing grace, would you give us the grace to join you to go to the lost, the dying, the hurting, to to not keep our distance from them, but to go to them with the message of the gospel, with your love. We we share your love with them through, through our lives, through our lips, our words and our actions. Understanding that we have been rescued ourselves. We thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here today and you're not certain that you have a relationship with Christ, he invites you to himself through repentance and faith by turning from seeking to do life your way apart from him and turning to Jesus and trusting, trusting in his finished work for you, accomplished on the cross And in the resurrection, Jesus invites you to himself today. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about a relationship with him, about uh, becoming a part of this church family, we'd love to welcome you. If there's a need in your life, we don't want you to leave here without having the opportunity to be prayed for. As we stand and sing in just a moment, we invite you to come. Let's stand as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. 
We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.